0: Welcome to The Ride, Life, Work, and Wealth Podcast with your host, Chris DeRoe. Years ago, Chris was a firefighter and a paramedic and witnessed many people not getting another tomorrow and it shaped who he is now as a financial strategist. Chris doesn't just help people plan for a secure tomorrow, he helps them plan for a better today. Chris lives in Burlington, Ontario, and is an investment advisor at Three Hats Financial, a trade name of Harborfront Wealth Management, and IRock dealer. Let's get to it.
1: You want returns from your investment portfolio, obviously, but be honest, you also want some protection on the downside. Where do you go in this environment with low interest rates for that? Well, today's markets are different. And portfolio management is changing to keep up with the times. Alternative investments are playing a bigger role. What are they? What do they offer? Ah, learn all about that and more in this episode of The Ride, Life, Work, and Wealth. Your host, Chris Dureaux of Three Hats Financial, has a great guest for the topic. Travis Foreman, Senior Vice President and a Portfolio Manager at Harborfront Wealth Management in Surrey, British Columbia. Travis and Chris will explain alternative investments and the big benefits they provide, but they will also go over why less than 5% of investors in North America have them in their portfolios.
2: Thanks, Patrice. (laughs) Great intro. Thanks very much, Travis, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I know we had talked a couple of times about having you on, so I'm glad the day's finally here and i'm quite excited about today's topic since i think it's very important for people to learn about this asset class and how important it is going forward to have this in your portfolio with the environment that we are currently all in so today's objective is i want to just educate listeners on what this asset class is and why it's so important to have it as part of your portfolio so We'll get started by, Travis, just having you fill us in on a bit of your background and then as well on what alternative investments are.
3: Okay, great. And thanks for having me. Hopefully we can take some complicated material and deliver it in a palatable way. As mentioned, I'm Senior Vice President of Harborfront Wealth Management, and I'm also Portfolio Manager of the Rockridge Private Debt Pool, the Forsyth Private Real Estate Portfolios, and the newly launched Laurier Private Equity Pool. We've been having great success with these investments over the you know last several years, and we've allocated just under a billion dollars to the space. So excited about what the future looks like. As a broad stroke to alternative investments, what I want to be clear on is alternative investments is a you know is, is a, big, a big grouping. A lot falls into that bucket. So what we want to talk about today is private alternative investments, and basically investments that are the alternative to the public market options. And specifically, as we will unpack this a little bit more through the dialogue, I'm sure we're going to focus more on private real estate, private debt, and maybe a little bit on private equity.
2: Okay, great. So let's start with then these alternative assets, they're not, or sorry, alternative investments, they're not new. They're still considered, I guess, to be non-traditional and unconventional to many investors. So who has been mostly been using these then if most retail investors aren't really aware of them?
3: Okay. Great question, Chris. Correct. Alternative investments are not new, but they are new to retail, as you just mentioned. Historically, the the asset class has been dominated by institutional investors, whether that's pension plans, endowment funds, insurance companies, and so forth, or what I would basically say the most prudent investors in the world and And they're finding their investment solutions in the private alternative asset classes
2: and then i know that yeah well pension fund managers are obviously in that grouping correct
3: correct yeah sorry
2: yeah Yeah. and yeah and then what i've noticed is they're not only using them they've been increasing their allocation over the last few years to this asset class so why is that
3: okay so you're absolutely right they have been increasing their allocation to the asset class If we actually unpack the Canada Pension Plan, which is, you know, the most recognizable pension plan in Canada and by World Bank, you know, in the top 10 best run pools of capital in the world, we'll see that the Canada Pension Plan over the last 20 years has gone from virtually almost no allocation to private alternatives to upwards of 70% of their portfolio being invested in private alternatives. And so why would a pension plan do that? you know, to keep it is a basically, well, let's unpack what a pension plan is. Okay. So it's a prudent, probable and predictable income stream for their, the their clients. And so they've been seeing by allocating more away from the public markets to private alternative investments, they're able to meet their future obligations with less volatility, less risk, and ultimately higher return.
2: So then if they're able to have a lower correlation basically with, I guess the public equity markets and fixed income. And you're saying like they're getting, would you say more consistent returns then with lower risk?
3: Yes, I would say more consistent returns. So let's take an example. We all have short memories, unfortunately, but if we can go back to December, 2018, okay. Which was the worst December in I believe 79 Decembers. Okay and we saw the public markets pullback or drawdown or however you want to describe, describe it uh, quite significantly. And what we saw on the private alternative side, uh, we didn't see that drawdown at all. And in fact, with the Rockridge private debt pool, it was our best month ever. So you can see that it's not correlated to the public market alternative. Another great example, and again, we all have short memories, would be, let's say the COVID collapse of Q1 2020 where we saw the equity mark public equity markets draw down in excess of 30%. We saw the public income markets draw down in excess of seven to 10%, depending on what kind of yield you were looking for. And if we take a look at the private real estate equity alternative or the private debt alternative, we didn't see any drawdowns. And in fact, we had positive months through through Q1. So basically, it's, you know, when you're not exposed to the fear and sensationalism that comes with the public markets, you just have the value of the underlying asset. And, you know, and that asset didn't asset class didn't go down in these in the, using these examples.
2: Yeah, and that's quite the measuring stick when you're comparing, like, like you said, December 2018. And then well more importantly, the first quarter of 2020. There's March 2020 that month, we know is one of the fastest market drops we've ever experienced. So that was definitely a good measuring stick on how well these alternative uh, investments can hold their own, that's for sure. And seeing the numbers is actually pretty incredible on how well they held during that time. So yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Now, I guess obviously in the time that we're in and we just went through obviously a, a bad year last year that it would be most likely to be important to have a portion of your portfolio allocated to this just because of the downside risks or potential that it adds. So I guess my question is, if pension fund managers and high net worth individuals are using these due to the benefits, well, why isn't everyone using these then?
3: So that's a great question as well. The Basically, access would be the biggest one. So first of all, yes, you're 100% correct. With sky high stock market valuations, economic uncertainty, it's a good time to de risk the portfolio and de risking it by taking some exposure away from publics and putting it into private. So, uh, 100% agree with you there. Why have retail been able to access this asset class in a larger base, if, on a larger level, is because you have to be an accredited investor. Okay. And an accredited investor comes with some certain. Measurings, uh, measurements, if you will, to allow you into the club, if you will, you, you know, you have to have a minimum of $1 million outside of your RRSP, you have, or excuse me, real estate. You get, if you're a corporation, you need $3 million in your corporation. If you're a dual income household has to make 300,000 plus two years prior to purchase. And some of these numbers sound ridiculous to, to an average Canadian, and it is. And I would assume that we probably eliminate that, you know, 98% of Canada uh, by applying this filter. So if if the tier one financial institutions are a volume player, which they are, are they gonna create a, a manufacturer, a product to target such a small audience? Probably not. So unfortunately the investors that do recognize the use of these and allocating to them and the advisors as well, they just can't get access to them. And so that's the hurdle.
2: Yeah, so basically the entry price from what you're saying is obviously extremely <laughs> expensive, and you need a heck of a lot of capital to be able to even to get into this asset class. Hence, why a lot of Canadians have not been able to benefit from this asset class.
3: Yeah, 100% so, correct. And then it, actually, on the intro, the comment was, I believe, was about 5% of, of allocation in, and that's really a U.S. based number. If we if we really drill down and unpack Canada, uh private alternatives really aren't making the portfolio at all.
2: So the question is if if we if we're going over that okay all these big pension fund managers that are managing significant amounts of money and know what they're doing and the ultra high net worth are using them for all these benefits and these reasons. I guess the real question is well shouldn't shouldn't people be using this for their retirement savings and their portfolios if they can access it as well?
3: Hundred percent, and I actually recently wrote an article for the Globe and Mail, and I actually just I essentially said that as well. If we can agree that the pension plans, the endowment funds, and the ultra high net worth are sophisticated investors, and they're using this asset class to meet their obligations, you know, shouldn't Canadians be using it as well to meet theirs, and you know, ultimate and create a, the income yield that they're looking for without the volatility throughout the retirement? And it's just so important for people to start allocating. And especially it's never been more important than right now with the current valuations, it is time to de-risk a little bit.
2: Great. Well, thanks, Travis. Now, I don't want the listeners thinking that we're doing this whole podcast for the ultra wealthy and you're about to click out out of the show and stop listening. The whole point of this is we want to get the point across of what the alternative investments are. And also, I want to go through the options that are now available to retail investors, which is the majority of Canadians that don't have millions of dollars to invest. So Travis, what options is there for investors now in Canada to start accessing this asset class?
3: Well, I would say the best option and the leading option would be without without self-promoting too much is through Harborfront Wealth Management. We definitely are leaders in the private alternative investment allocation space. And what we've done is architect the Rockridge private debt pool, which is you know, private, private lending, which is a the replacement for public income in the portfolio. We've also architected the Forsyth private real estate portfolios and the Laurier private equity pool. Uh, and these are all heavily sub-advised, okay? So they, it's a well-diversified, portfolio of best in class of their particular asset class in private alternative space. So it really becomes a one-stop shop of, of private debt, private real estate, and, pri- and private equity. Now, that being said, even though we've architected these vehicles where clients can purchase and get access to 15 sub-advisors and, and even advisors that, you know, investments that aren't even available... To, to the ultra high net worth and so forth, because they, they could be potentially closed for business for new deposit, I mean. So it, it really is a first class investment. But that being said, we still have that hurdle of the accredited investor. How do we get this to the Canadian that doesn't have the million outside of their house, the 3 million in a corporation that doesn't make $300,000 per year. And that is through a program called a unified managed account program called the Watermark Portfolios here at Harborfront Wealth Management. In doing so, clients are, the way it's been architected, in a nutshell, is clients are able to access this truly institutional-style investments without meeting the hurdles of the accredited investor, and it's uh, truly unique and you know something that we're proud to be part of.
2: Yeah, thanks very much for informing that, and I know that we've started putting clients into that to give them access to it because they don't fall under an accredited investor, and uh, it's been working very well. So thanks for letting listeners know that there is options for this. So now I wanna go back to the alternative investment subcategories, which you initially mentioned at the beginning of the show, which is private debt, real estate and private equity. So I'm gonna play a bit of a devil's advocate here because as we've been moving clients into these programs, I wanna go through some of the questions that comes up from them. So as soon as you mentioned, first I'll ask if alternative investments, if it's risky and we've kind of gone through that, it's actually to protect more in the portfolios. But some of their concerns has been as soon as you mentioned debt or mortgages or real estate, right away people are like, whoa, whoa wait a second. Like, I understand real estate has been a good place to put money, but everyone is now over leveraging themselves like crazy with mortgages. And look what happened to the housing collapse in 2008. What if that happened again? So, is it a good idea to be putting money into those categories? Can you give us some detail, Travis, on? how these investments have done for the long term and even during those periods I just mentioned?
3: Sure, okay. So let's start with private real estate, okay? Because everybody can identify with owning real estate. One of the things that we have to keep in mind is we're, we're not investing with you know, the average Canadian or the average North American. We're investing with people that specialize in owning and operating certain types of private real estate portfolios. And most specifically, what we purchase is what multifamily, okay, or otherwise, you know, easily identify as, as apartment buildings or, or townhome developments and things like that, uh, and in, in, industrial, okay. And one of the things to keep in mind, specifically on the real estate side and the multifamily, being, is it is very, very defensive in the sense that Canada survives on what we call sustainable immigration. And even now there's plans to immigrate over 400,000 people to Canada in the next 12 months. Now, what we also know of being Canadians is that there's nowhere to live. And as of 2019 December, there were 70,000 purpose-built rentals under construction coast to coast in Canada. And if we immigrate a million people every three years and we can agree that it takes three years to build an apartment building, well, it just, the supply demand, it, it, just never meets up. And so the runway is quite long. And so although it's bad for people moving to Canada and trying to get into the real estate market because it creates an expensive real estate market, it's good for us as investors. And if we take back historically through and using the private multifamily index, it's never been negative in 32 years, okay? And that's and the reason why I chose such an odd number of years is it's only been tracked for 32 years, okay? So it has never been negative. And if we take go back to the 2008 and 2009 financial crisis, which we largely saw, you know, in the states and things like, you know, Nevada and Florida and Arizona and so forth, lots of different reasons as far as inventory and everything else that don't line up with what we're doing here. But even with all that going on, the private multifamily index was still positive in 2008 and 2009. Now it's important to note here because we're talking about risk mitigation as well as keeping our opportunity for growth. Now everybody, again, we all have short memories, but in 2008, the S&P 500 had a drawdown of over 55% negative. And private real estate specifically multifamily was still positive too. So I can't stress enough on how uncorrelated this is to the the public markets that we see. On the private debt side, I'll take another minute, in 2008 and 2009, it actually was some of the best years ever, okay? So what happens in times of uncertainty, we're aware that the tier one financial firms basically tighten their strings and make it harder and harder to lend money and so forth. And they don't wanna take exposure to areas of uncertainty. So what happens is if the banks are closed for business, people still need money and then therefore the private lender is sitting on the sideline going, well, I happen to have a billion dollars. And if you would like some of it, you're going to have to pay X right now on a business owner perspective, believe it or not, almost 50% of Canadian GDP is from small to medium sized enterprises that want loans of typically one to $10 million. And the banks largely got out of that space in 2008 and in 2009. And then private lenders became very, very popular and and had some of their best years ever. On the mortgage side, too, as well, we saw the exact same thing. Some of the large, you know, I invest in the largest private residential mortgage funds in Canada. And 2008 and 2009 were their best years ever. So when things get difficult out there, people tend to hunker down and meet their obligations because they don't want to make their life any more uncertain by having to move or anything like that. So, hopefully, I answered the question.
2: Yeah, no, especially the numbers in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. I remember seeing that it was actually it was actually positive years. So, yeah, no, that's that's great. Thanks, and that's just some of the questions that have popped up as we've been moving clients into this asset class. So, next thing is, can you just touch on? We keep mentioning the word private. So, some clients are like, well. Investing in real estate is nothing new. I can invest in a REIT, which is a real estate investment trust for people that don't know what a REIT is. And they don't really understand the difference. Can you just explain the difference of investing in private equity versus just public? Okay.
3: So they actually kind of operate fundamentally similar in the sense that you're becoming a unit holder of an investment fund that's either private and or public. But what happens is and these investment funds might even specialize in similar types of real estate investing, be it multifamily or retail or industrial or what have you. But the main difference between the two is that when you're on the private side, you eliminate the impact of fear and sensationalism and what I call a rational investor behavior. Okay. And this can be seen, you know, shockingly actually with the Q1 numbers of 2020. When COVID, you know, when we first heard the word pandemic and started to go into lockdown, the public real estate investment trust, by and large, if we could just take the the blanket, went down negative of over 20% and there still are negative of around 10%. here. And the reason being is everybody thought that Canadians would stop paying their rent or what have you. And quite the opposite. Through communication, these investment managers, you know, through increased communication, getting access to the social benefits that were out and available, rent collection, not only didn't go down in a lot of cases, but it actually went up in a lot of cases. And, and so therefore there was, it, and so we, and the people tend not to, like I said before, people tend not to move in times of uncertainty as well. So if you're an investment, an owner operator of a portfolio of multifamily buildings, nobody's moving, which means your expenses are down because uh, you don't have to replace the paint the walls or replace the range or what have you, you don't have the cost involved of in getting a new tenant in and then and the rent collection stayed the same or got better in a lot of cases and operating expenses went down because interest rates went down and now they're borrowing money below inflation for 10 years. So if your rent collections the same but your expenses are down net operating in- income has gone up and I know that because you know managing this fund but. When you add in fear and sensationalism of the public market, you wind up getting a negative return for ultimately no reason in a lot of cases. So this is why you know the private is favored by inst- you know, institutional investors like pension plan, endowment funds and so forth that really follow a prudent asset allocation model. Eliminate that that sensationalism and just have the value of the asset underneath it.
2: Great, thanks very much. I, I, I remember seeing the charts of the difference between as you mentioned, the, the drop, especially in March, with the private versus public and the significant difference. So yeah, thanks, that explains that, great. So the next thing I'm gonna move on to is inflation. I have been talking a lot about that to clients and how it's something that we need to be watching because the current environment that we're all in and how if inflation continues to increase, which it most likely will, and interest rates begin to rise, that this may bring further challenges to conventional portfolios. So how does alternative investments, more so the private debt, how does that help to hedge inflation?
3: Okay, great question. And I think I can answer this fairly easily in the sense that a lot of the private debt loans are you know, basically a prime plus or a LIBOR, you know, prime plus loan. Okay, so if that's prime plus five or prime plus seven or what have you. So if inflation finds its way into the market, As we know, they'll you know, likely see rising interest rates that come with that, and therefore the new loans that are going to be issued out from the the private lenders will be at higher, higher rates to reflect that inflation in the market. So in fact, you know, it's a perfect hedge against inflation in the sense that these loans are really, really short in duration as well, in most cases, typically under a year, maybe as low as nine months. And so therefore, you know, you basically 10% of the portfolio is being reissued out at new lending rates to reflect inflation to reflect new stress levels that may be arising in the economy and to reflect new collateral value and because the portfolio turns over so frequently we see you know, you know the collateral is always intact and it's you know a perfect hedge against inflation and if we go back on some of these mortgage providers chris you know 1996 inception 80s inception 70 i think 77 into the 50s in some cases These companies have been around longer than the largest companies today and have never had a negative return on their books because of how the actual lending book operates. So I think it's a great hedge to inflation on the real estate side, you know, quickly is it's inflation proof as well. You know, in most cases you're able to raise rent faster than inflation, which is a benefit of being in the real estate game. And then also too, if I would say if, if the, if the wood got more expensive and the lights got more expensive and the dishwasher got more expensive, it's a good thing. I already own all the lights in the dishwasher and the wood. So, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> it's perfect hedge against inflation again. And these have been tested through inflationary environments and our favorite asset classes. Good question though.
2: Okay. Great. No, a g- good answer. Well, we've talked a lot about alternative investments. I guess, Travis, so in a nutshell, what type of client should be looking at adding this to their portfolio then?
3: Well, every client, you know, at the end of the day, if you're, you know, one of the things I always say is if you're frustrated with sky high stock market evaluations and that's keeping you up at night, de-risk by going into private alternatives. If you're frustrated with, you know, economic activities, we can't, you know, if I, I used to say presidential tweets frustrating your portfolio, de-risk <laughs> that by taking the public market out of play. At the end of the day, and this is not new data. Again, we said it's new to retail, but it's not new to institutional investors. Yeah. If we use Harvard and Yale endowment fund as the super endowments with 20 years of data behind them in the space, they learned quickly, the more money they allocated to private alternatives, the better they did and with less risk. So ultimately, if it's a Canadian client looking to de-risk their portfolio without sacrificing return over the long run, They need to be adding a portion of alternatives into their allocation, for sure.
2: Well, that's great. Thanks, Travis, so much for your time today. And I really enjoyed going through this with you. And we'll have to have you back down the road for sure, because this is just, just scraping the surface. There's quite a bit more we could have gone in deeper on this. But I believe we gave people at least a good taste of what alternative investments are and the importance of them, especially in this environment. And yeah, thank you very much for coming on the show today.
3: Thanks for having me, Chris. Anytime. Happy to come back.
1: And that is Travis Foreman of Harborfront Wealth Management with Chris DeRoe of Three Hats Financial and the host of this podcast, The Ride, Life, Work and Wealth. Subscribe to get every new episode, share with others and comment on what you've learned.
0: Thank you for listening to The Ride, life, work, and wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. All comments are of a general nature and should not be relied upon as individual advice. The views and opinions expressed in this commentary may not necessarily reflect those of Harborfront Wealth Management. While every attempt is made to ensure accuracy, facts and figures are not guaranteed. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing or tax advice. Please seek advice from your accountant regarding anything raised in the content of the podcast regarding your individual tax situation. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.